<laughs> and especially the next two is that we're going to pull back on the throttle a little bit. For those of you, it was like too much, too fast. We're going to pull back just a little bit. But since we got late going, I don't know, I may just stomp the gas pedal. <laughs> The other, the other thing people said was, uh, I thought to myself that point could use some more airtime or discussion. Mike and I were talking about this. I agree. We simply don't have that luxury in this class. Um, so for each and every time you thought to yourself, we need some more discussion on that class, on, on that, go see adult ed. Talk to them about your idea or your suggestion. But if you've looked at the committee lately, they're getting older and forgetful. Yeah, that's just the way they are. Even Ron, even Ron, Ron is Ron is a card-carrying member of the I forgot my wife's name club. <laughs> so if you make a suggestion to him, make sure he writes it down, or he will promptly forget it. So last uh, two weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, in week one, we talked about those kind of things, the survival relevance. And then last week, we started with our first question, isn't it all a matter of interpretation? And really, the mountain of things that people subsume underneath that question are huge. And we simply looked at three, only three, that could be subsumed under that. Uh, so we asked and answered, gave a response to the first two, Protestant denominations and persecuted. We're not going to go back over that again. And then we stuck our toe into interpretive pluralism. That is a big deal. Um, and then toward the end, we um, asked and answered question two, can we know anything about history? And I'll just tell you the short response is yes. Um, Last time, we uh, were going to look at two possible responses. We got through a shorter one about interpretive pluralism, which simply says you can bring to the text some inductive and deductive questions. Um, but today, we're going to look at a longer response. This is all under about interpretation. Isn't it just your interpretation? And interpretive pluralism, in other words, data sets, Every time any of us are confronted with data sets, we have different interpretations about what the data displays and, and says to us, right? That's what interpretive pluralism is. So, uh, we're going to step into a scenario and then talk to several points. I will have to say, um, this format was inspired by a 2019 article I read from D.A. Carson. I kind of like the format. So I've kind of adopted that for this. I'm going to be reading you the words of a fictional person, a visitor of sorts, into our midst. Uh, sort of a uh, holographic avatar channeling uh, his or her voice through me. Kind of weird. Could be a man or a woman. Someone who used to call himself or herself a Christian may still use that term for himself. But her path has led into the valley of deconstruction. Now, how many are familiar or have heard of that term, deconstruction? Okay. It's often called faith deconstruction. In order to get a feel for this visitor, we're going to have to talk for just a minute about deconstruction. 
In the most positive form, it's called having a faith crisis. So let's explore that for just a few minutes. Deconstruction is a term that's been increasingly used in evangelical circles, especially over the last decade. It stems from uh, French philosopher Jacques Derrida, who coined the term. He was an advocate for postmodern philosophy of language and its relationship to our conceptions of meaning. And we talked about that last week. I'm sure if you just think back, you're like, oh yeah, I got that. He coined that term, and it's taken root and flourished. He asserts, Derrida asserts, that human language at best communicates not absolute truth, but how a certain individual conceives of truth at a certain moment of time. Hey, there's some high dollar seats down front. And, and bring your friends. <laughs> that was Mary Wooten who just left the room. Look at, look at all these seats down here. These are $15 seats, box seats right down front. <laughs> It's like I'm on the price is right. It is. You're, you're all down front. That's right. So how a certain individual conceives the truth in the context of culture, political, religious, he used deconstruction to help reveal our hidden assumptions about the world. Now, why? what, what was the deal with him? He was alarmed over illegitimate uses of authority and power. For him, deconstruction was a means of cross-examining the relationship between law and justice, between language and power. Remember that from last week? The reader was all about that. That's what did that's 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 the genesis of deconstruction. But he also thought, Daria also thought that anyone who says they had discovered a single correct meaning or a true God or an absolute truth is not just wrong, but provides that person who says such a thing as a, a, a wonderful opportunity for labeling others as either fools or heretics because they disagree. In the Christian world, this term, deconstruction, <coughs> translates to critically questioning traditional Christian belief. It also means refusing to recognize as authorities those perceived as in any way speaking for God. So thinking back to last week, who does that leave as the interpreter of the text? Me. You. Nobody else is important as you on the interpreter of the text. You get to do it. What does the Bible claim to be? It claims to be the revealed communication of God to us. That's what it claims to be. So does that affect the authority of the Bible? Yeah, it does. It does. So this is, a, this is a familiar verse out of Paul's letter to the uh, Corinthians, his second letter. This is a healthy version of self-examination. This is from the uh, Christian Standard Bible. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? I happen to like this living Bible 
uh, version of that passage. It's a little more forceful. Check up on yourselves. Are you really Christians? Do you pass the test? Do you feel Christ's presence more, presence and power more and more within you? Or are you just pretending to be Christians when you actually aren't at all? Now, there are a small group of evangelicals who use deconstruction to describe ways to protect historical doctrine and healthy practices. Uh, most of you are familiar with uh, Mark Driscoll and the rise and fall of the Mars Hill Church. Uh, Paul Tripp, one of the executive board members at one time, did a podcast, and he said, we should all be de deconstructing our faith. Now, what I think he meant by that, I'll listen to that, what, I, what he seems to mean by that is deconstruction is not, in, at that moment in time, wasn't his thought that it's a critical dismantling of orthodox historical Christian belief, but the dismantling of cultural influences that distort and redefine the faith in harmful and unbiblical ways. However, most who use the word deconstruction to describe their journey aren't talking about something we would call healthy. In his book, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, Jameen Hoogner writes, Deconstruction refers to the process of questioning one's own beliefs that were considered unquestionable due to new experiences, reading widely, widely engaging in conversations with the other, interacting the world that is now more connected and exposed to religious diversity than ever before. Now, doing those things doesn't necessarily lead to unhealthy outcomes, but it overemphasizes one set of actions, culturally connectedness, connectedness, while neglecting other actions that traditionally lead to increased faith. Examples might be what? Prayer, Bible reading and study, engaging in worship with fellow believers, Lectio Divina, all that sort of thing. As an aside, deconstructionists of Christianity, those who are on the other side and advocating for this process, they call themselves neo-decons, QQ, I think. They see themselves as reformers in the order of Martin Luther. They say the church needs to provide victims and sufferers new hope, even if that means tearing the Bible asunder from its ancient renderings. They like to say we need a new interpretive framework to consider the Bible afresh, especially since European white men ruined exegesis. They say, need a 21st century interpretation of Scripture? No problem. Simply apply a new, culturally derived hermeneutic to the ancient text. Presto, change how you get the outcome you desire. Most people refer to their deconstruction. They went through a process of critically dismantling their understanding of what it means to be a Christian. The result for many is the dismantling and abandoning of the Christian faith and that's called deconversion. Stacy, there's two seats right down here. You've got a choice. So deconstruction is a process. Deconversion is the result. 
Now, there have been a number of celebrity deconstructions. Josh, Josh Harris, I kiss dating goodbye comes to mind. Since they often comment on what actually happened, we know about more about them than we do perhaps from those who deconstruct privately. The published testimonies that I've been able to see seem to fall into three categories. Number one, some call deconstruction stripping back their understanding to the basics. You might call this simplifying instead of maybe deconstructing. They're trying to strain out the cultural aspects of Christianity. Number two, seeking to dispense what they consider legalism. If you get right down to it, this often has to do with uh, their tendency to view any restrictions on morality, particularly sexual morality, as outdated and not in keeping with the times. The third group basically talks about rejecting the authority of Scripture and or church tradition. One guy I read said, he's now rejecting the Bible, teaching of the church, which, and he said both of them had been corrupted over time, and instead he's now simply going to treat others the way he wants to be treated instead of living as a Christian. Deconversion is not the only outcome when a person valley, uh, travels through the valley of deconstruction. Others have talked about going through this process and coming out on the other side with a strength and invigorated face. In 1951, Francis and Eva Schaefer moved their family to Switzerland to launch a new mission, Labrie. Many of you are familiar with that. And Francis suddenly found himself plunged into a spiritual crisis. He had been a Presbyterian minister and was embroiled in the splits and divisions in that denomination in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. For months, he dismantled his beliefs and reassembled them piece by piece but he emerged, for those like me who are fans of his writing, he emerged with a greater confidence in the core truths of Christianity. His experience could be called deconstruction. However, most people call such an experience a faith crisis. So now back to the testimony of our visitor, a deconstructed Christian who has left the building. Here's a disclaimer. I worked on this lesson in June, which, as you know, is was Pride Month. So that affects the, it affects his testimony. Here we go. This is him or her speaking to you. I'm telling you, you don't know for sure. You don't know. That the reading of the Bible, that your reading of the Bible is right. You don't know that your hermeneutics are correct. You don't know for sure how interwoven the divine and human authorship of the Bible is. You don't know 100% for certain which ancient books are actually God Almighty's eternal word. We rely on those books because they're the ones that were chosen when the church put a Bible together. Moses didn't bring the whole Bible down from the mountain. We love those books. But we don't have a very good understanding of how this collection of books came together. We don't absolutely know for certain how God wants us to use these books. 
how he wants them applied to the 21st century Western world. We do not know for certain. We cannot know for certain. Believing in the Bible is an act of faith for everyone, and I believe the Bible. But when my eyes are open to the fact that I can say both, this book is holy, and there's a lot of uncertainty how it should be applied to our society, I immediately recognize I could get the answer to all sorts of cultural questions wrong, one way or the other. I could end up approving something God hates or hating something God loves. Could go either way. Because the issue is not certain. It's not. We know the same facts. You know it's not certain. So if my potential mistake is to love something God hates, then I'm going to err on the side of what it looks and feels to be most like love. Because whatever else I believe about God, I believe that God is love. So I have to try to approve the things that look most like love. Happy Pride Month. All right, let's try to unpack that testimony. Did you get it? I'm not reading it again. <laughs> There's several things here that come to mind immediately. He keeps saying, or she keeps saying, you cannot know for sure, for certain, for 100% certain, and, and so on. His argument seems to be that if you do not know something for 100% sure, then you truly don't know it. In other words, you must possess almost omniscient knowledge about something before you can legitimately say that you know one thing well enough to build life decisions on what you know or what you've learned. This is deceptive for at least several reasons. We commonly speak of human knowing without making omniscience, the criterion for true knowing. This is true even in the Bible. For example, Luke tells Theophilus that although many people have undertaken to hand down reports of Jesus' life and ministry, as reported by eyewitnesses, he himself carefully investigated everything from, from the beginning and decided to write an orderly account that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke uses words that are entirely appropriate to human knowing, to human certainty. He is not promising omniscient knowledge to Theophilus. Number two, if our visitor's comments are valid for the issues that concern him, then to be consistent, we, may, we must adopt the same agnostic position on everything the Bible says, including what it says about most deeply held Christian beliefs. For example, Christians hold Jesus is truly to be confessed and worshipped as God, but the deity of Christ, is denied by Arians, old and new, including Jehovah's Witnesses. So I ask, should we just throw our hands in the air and say there's no universal agreement on what the Bible teaches about this core concept? Should we just leave the matter open? Does that even make good sense? Our visitors said, believing in the Bible is an act of faith. 
true enough. It appears, however, that he pits faith over against knowing. His argument seems to be, you may believe the Bible says such and such about LGBTQ issues, but you cannot know 100% for certain. So therefore, you are not warranted to pronounce that LGBTQ behavior is disapproved by God. This, however, buys into a misguided view of knowledge, but also the contemporary definitions of faith on the streets. You might you say on the street. On the streets, faith has one of two common meanings. It's either a synonym for religion. It's your faith, it's your, it's your religion. Or it refers to a personal, subjective, religious commitment without any necessary connection to truth. Something like the latter is what our visitor seems to be accepting, even though faith is never used that way in the Bible. In the Bible, faith is intimately connected with truth. The Bible never asks you to believe or trust what is not true or trustworthy. Indeed, in, in the Bible, one of the most commonest, one of the most common means of strengthening the faith is by articulating and defending the truth. So the obvious conclusion is, how does this dude know that God is a loving God? There are a whole lot of new atheists who viscerally deny that God is either great or good. To be consistent, shouldn't we say we can't know for certain that God is good? Isn't he making ethical decisions on the basis of what he's already said he cannot know? So that was, that was my first kind of thought about this. The second one is that he says he not only claims that he does not know whether the relevant texts are God and what they mean, but he also claims that no one else can legitimately claim that they know. That's called imperious ignorance. It's an imperial declaration that they must be ignorant whether or not they admit it. I don't know it, and you certainly can't know it. Also, someone may decide it's impossible to decide one way or the other about a text. The evidence is less than conclusive. This is more than, I don't know. It's an argument that others are implicitly forbidden to decide. It's a great example of imperious ignorance. It is reasonable to say that in every case, some people can decide with varying degrees of certainty, even if others confess they cannot. Last week, we talked a lot about how we have all drunk deeply from the downstream affluent of the postmodern movement. It affects even hermeneutics. The task of traditional biblical hermeneutics is to develop skills to enable me, the interpreter, to ask the questions, ask questions of if the text. Ron talked about this exhaustively in January. I, the knower interpreter, direct questions to the text, and the text, as it were, answers me back with equal directness. 
But the new hermeneutic, postmodern hermeneutics, points out that the I asking the question is never neutral, never objective. What if the I is white, middle class, western, well-educated male? Probably the questions that person asks won't be the same as a young African coming to the Bible after hearing about health, wealth, and prosperity from some preacher at the local tabernacle. They're going to be two separate kinds of questions. I think I am asking a direct question of the text. That's what Ron was talking about. However, the notion is our cultural and social influences guarantee my question is not a direct hit. It's more of a glancing blow that reflects an angle that says more about me than it does about the text. And similarly, a text does not answer back directly either. It responds with an answer substantially determined by the question I've asked. So I hit the text with a glancing question, it responds with a glancing answer. I'm doubtlessly affected by the answer, and I fire off another question, and I get another answer. I have set up a hermeneutical circle with no way of escaping subjectivity. It ultimately leads to, but that's just your interpretation. That leads to a wealth of innovative interpretations that transform personal beliefs and have enough people buy into them cultural assumptions. Richard Topping, a number of years ago in the Scottish Bulletin of Evangelical Theology, points out this great, I mean, you need, you need to just make a, you just need to make a plaque. You just need to make a plaque. Remember, we live in a time when six of the seven deadly sins are medical conditions and pride is a virtue. No longer a sin. When enough people absorb the interpretations that postmodernism has authorized, it's easy for us to feel excluded. In contrast, if you agree with our visitor, you cannot know the truth. Then a visitor that's steeped in the affluent of postmodernism, you won't be odd, but neither will you know the truth. Okay, so here's the question. It's all about interpretation. In light of what we've talked about with interpretive pluralism, let's propose some additional responses. We've talked a little bit about it, but I want to talk some more. Answer number one. So we're asked, isn't it just a matter of interpretation? What is, what is a reasonable response? I think it's important to avoid a response that is needlessly polarizing. For transparently to me, no interpreter, no I is perfectly objective. The only way to achieve perfection in that department is by becoming omniscient. Not going to happen. In other words, traditional hermeneutics framed wisely and humbly reminds all of us how we cannot escape our subjectivity, our finiteness, our cultural blind spots. And Ron, once again, camped on this point. 
My second answer is, is that it does not follow that all interpretations are equally valid or invalid. Experience seems to show us that we're not doomed to a hermeneutical circle. The more we encompass all the layers surrounding our text, the better our understanding. Again, Ron leaned into this point in January. You don't just pick up the Bible and say, read two verses and say, I got it. There's more to it than that. Our knowing, our interpretations are more akin to the movement of a hermeneutical spiral. As we circle the text again and again, we get closer and closer to faithful understanding, even if it's never the understanding available only to omniscience. This room is full of left-brain math major engineer types. I'm really sorry for you or if you're married to one, but my dad was one, so this is for them. Let's just approach the mathematical model. Approaching the biblical text places us on, on an asymptotic approach to perfect knowledge. The quality of our interpretation increases over time with effort, and it approaches the asymptote, perfection, perfect knowledge, but we never really get there. For that is the prerogative of omniscience. But we may sidle up so closely that it's as good as, or as if we managed to get all the way. That's what approximations do in calculus, for all those who took calculus. It's all about, it's all about approximations. My third, my third thought is, the appropriateness the appropriateness of these models of learning and knowing is confirmed by the way we approach all kinds of subjects, whether it's welding, forestry, Greek, statistics, microbiology, biblical studies. This faithful, we grow closer to faithful knowing with time. Our first attempts, as we delve into anything at knowing a subject is to expose how large is the distance between what we think we know and what's actually there, as measured by those who truly do know more than us, amazingly. We human beings learn. We come to know by degrees. We self-correct. We compare notes with others. None of this supports the notion that we can obtain perfect omniscient knowledge but it surely excludes the notion that anybody's gained knowledge is equal to anybody else's gained knowledge. And finally, the models change again if we become convinced that omniscience has kindly spoken to us in the words of human language. This does not mean that God has given us the capacity to enjoy omniscient knowledge for ourselves, for that we would have to be God. But surely, surely it's reasonable to assume that this omniscient God knows which words, idioms, syntax, figures of speech to use, so as best to communicate with his image bearers. However, 
lost or blind we may be. On all the topics about which he wants us to be most informed in love, he says the same thing again and again in words of different human authors in different contexts. Not only so, but he liberally bestows his spirit to enlighten their understanding. He expects his readers to be like believers in Berea. That was a reminder to Greg to ring the bell. <laughs> He's not getting the message. We got He bestows his spirit as he expects his readers to be like believers in Berea who receive the message with great eagerness and examine the scriptures every day to see what if Paul said was true. Our omniscient God stands behind the words we have from him, however faulty our interpretive efforts. He calls us to humility and godly fear whenever we engage the sacred text. Next session is going to be really interesting. The questions, I'll just tell you, the questions <clears throat> come from some list. I've read a lot of stuff, and these seem to be the top questions that show up from particularly young people particularly young people. So next question is a young person kind of question. But turns out it's an old question. So, so. Okay, we're done a minute early. One of you, at least one of you, has a burning comment. Something that will really round out a point or fill a missing gap. Yeah, the, the interesting point about the visitor is is that uh, he or she wants to apply that to a particular thing in which they are very interested, a particular topic in which they are very interested. So, but probably haven't thought through the whole, probably haven't thought through the whole thing. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. He is the full embodiment of you. And Father, we thank you for the Bible, your communication to us. We, we can't have Jesus in the flesh standing in this room, but just amazingly, astonishingly, we can have your words in our language, right here in our laps, right here in our hands. And, and we can come to know you, Father, in part by reading, by reading what you have to say to us. What a blessing. What a blessing. And Father, we sit, we, we sit with your word in our hands and we communicate, we pray back to you. We want to know you 
more and more deeply, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.